power hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Joining us now on Power Hour for the nth time grateful for all of them, is Dr. Eric Dennis, senior fellow and all-around bright guy. Eric, welcome back to Power Hour. Thanks, Alex. All right, so as I mentioned in the intro and as I mentioned last week, uh, these 10 weeks or so are going to be uh, Power Hours devoted to the topics of my book, I Love Fossil Fuels. I don't know why I just called it I Love Fossil Fuels. It's definitely not called that at this point. I have to, I guess I should acknowledge just um, in case anyone views this as just pure stupidity. I, I just, I gave a talk earlier today and, and that, that can sometimes take a little bit out of you. So it might take me a minute or two to get oriented. Fortunately, I have a guest to contribute most of the intelligence to the show. Anyway, to say that again, my book, The Case for Fossil Fuels, and one of the great things about Power Hour is... Not only do we get to share great stuff with you, but I get to, to discuss uh, ideas with and learn uh, from people and bounce ideas off them. So I figure we'll, we'll all get a big benefit out of this. So we're, this week, we're going to be talking about climate change, which is, is right now planned to be the second chapter on my book, which is a whole interesting uh, issue in and of itself, why I'm, I'm choosing that, or at least tentatively choosing that. But Eric and I have talked about that. We've talked about how to think about it. We've talked about it from a lot of angles. But I maintain that the way I'm planning on covering it in this book has a lot of new wrinkles to it that are new to me that I think will be new to you and that will help you explain it. So I'm going to – what we're going to do is I'm going to bring up what I think are the, the five biggest topics of the chapter and then we'll, we'll drill down into them, get Eric's opinion. I'll throw in some stuff and hopefully it'll be, be really valuable. All right, Eric, you ready? Sure. All right. So what I think is that like, the sort of the key idea of thinking about the key summary of fossil fuels and climate is that fossil fuels absolutely have impacts on the livability of our climate, which is really the key perspective to take the livability of our climate. But those impacts are overwhelmingly positive and can be expected to remain so for the indefinite future. So fossil fuels have impacts on the livability of our climate, and they're overwhelmingly positive, and they can be expected to remain so for the indefinite future. So first thing to cover, I think, is making clear this, that it is absolutely important to, under, to investigate the effect that CO2 and other elements, uh, but particularly CO2 from fossil fuels has on climate because CO2 is connected to two known climate related effects. And this is the, the greenhouse effect. And then I, I don't actually know the technical name, but I, I, for fun, I call it the fertilizer effect, namely that it's, it's, it's plant food. So, it's absolutely a legitimate inquiry when we are changing the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere to investigate what happens. But at the same time, that's an investigation that has to happen without prejudice. Uh, 
And so, so let's, uh, and the other reason which we'll get into more later is it's also important to investigate the impact on energy vis-a-vis -vis climate because energy, as we'll see and as we've discussed, has a huge impact on the livability of our climate. But let's just, just start with, uh, with CO2. So, Eric, what is the, give us just uh, sort of the unprejudiced baseline capsule of what the greenhouse effect is, how it works. And I think part of being unprejudiced is being very specific. Like, um, you know, is it, you know, well, just, just let's, let's start there. How, do, how does the greenhouse effect work in terms of the known effect that's uncontroversial? Right. Uh, and it is important to acknowledge that, I mean, any sophisticated climate skeptic, someone who's skeptical about catastrophic global warming, um, acknowledges that there's a legitimate thing called the greenhouse effect. Uh, various uh, gases contribute to it, and, and particularly carbon dioxide. And, and the effect is that um, as uh, light comes down from the sun, uh, it, uh, it, it does two things. It can, it can be absorbed into the earth, uh, so absorbed into water or earth itself, um, or, you know, rocks or any, any kind of surface material. And uh, it does a number of things, but one of the things it'll do is heat up the earth. But it can also be reflected back uh, from the surface of the earth back towards space. Now, the greenhouse effect um, is uh, associated with the fact that um, the, as the radiation, the light, radiation just means light, basically, of different wavelengths, um, i.e. different colors, as the light is reflected back up into space, some of that light uh, can, instead of just going back into outer space, uh, can get essentially trapped or caught by gas molecules in the atmosphere. And different kinds of gas molecules have a different propensity uh, to trap that radiation. Um, and in particular, greenhouse gases, they, uh, when they quote-unquote, trap the radiation when they interact with the light that's otherwise being reflected out into space. Instead of that light being reflected out into space, it is exhausted in the gas molecules, and it heats up those molecules, and so it heats up the atmosphere. So that, that light, that solar radiation, is transferred from, uh, from light, from photons, into the, the um, heat energy uh, in the atmosphere. And to the extent that you have more of this effect going on, you have more heat, more energy being transferred as heat into the atmosphere. Um, and that can cause the, the temperature of the atmosphere and also of the, the oceans and uh, of the land as a result to increase. So that's, that's kind of like the zeroth order greenhouse effect. That's, that's the basic effect. And it's again, uncontroversial. Um, and, one of the important questions about this effect is how much uh, trapping, how much heat trappage, heat trapping you get as you increase concentration of a gas like carbon dioxide. Well, let me let me just jump in there. I definitely want to hear hear the rest of that thought. Uh, that I think there's just an assumption when people hear, oh, we're changing quote changing the climate, and oh, we're heating, that it's this either just a direct thing, like the more you put up, it's just like jacking up a thermostat, or it's this out of control thing. Sometimes you'll hear 
the terminology tipping point, but it, it and you see these images of the earth burning and and uh, I just want to highlight and I, I think you agree that that these are to say the very least unwarranted assumptions about what it would look like to increase the amount uh, of something like like CO two. Yeah, I mean. Those kind of cartoons are more propagandistic, certainly, than they are scientific. Um, so, so just to continue, but I, I guess what I'm getting at is that uh, this is something I've been thinking about lately, and Richard Lindzen has talked a lot about just the issue of, of, of feedback loops in, in, in nature, which we can talk about more, but it's it's hard to think of something where you can just increase it. I mean, what, what is there that you can just increase linearly and that it would just keep heating up uh, the earth more and more? I guess there's... Well, well for instance, so, okay. Um, there's a, a balance that goes on uh, between the energy coming into the earth, which is you know primarily from the sun, almost entirely from the sun, the energy coming into the earth uh, and the energy that the Earth is kind of belching out into space. Um, now, if you if you do increase, for instance, the intensity of the sun somehow, if that were if that were ramped up, um, you know that that effect would not be somehow washed out. It would be um, there would be you know a dramatic response as as the the radiation uh, intensity of the sun increased, for instance. That would be one different kind of effect that's dissimilar in the nature of how it scales to uh, the greenhouse gas effect. Okay, so how does the greenhouse gas uh, effect scale? Because at the beginning, it's intense, right? Like if we had no CO2 in the atmosphere, it would be a lot colder. Is that correct? Right. So the idea is that the, you know, the very first couple of molecules of CO2 that you add, um, they're, uh, you know, very effective at grabbing reflected light, reflect, it's really reflected infrared radiation, um, which is just light, but it's, uh, you know, it's a color we can't see. It's, it's a, little, uh, a little longer wavelength than red, um, so we can't see it, but it's just a different kind of light. Um, as you add the first couple of molecules, they're very effective at catching that radiation and turning it into heat. Um, as you add more and more carbon dioxide, uh, the effectiveness per molecule at catching that reflected uh, infrared radiation goes down. So the molecules become less and less effective at per molecule at catching radiation as there are more and more carbon dioxide molecules in the atmosphere. All right. Well, we're definitely not going to be able to cover everything that I, that I cover in the chapter. One thing I just want to indicate, though, is that's important to cover and that I do cover is absolutely looking at the effects of the uh, the impact of CO2 uh, on on plant life, which is a, an effect we all know via common sense, in which Craig did so a couple episodes ago of Power Hour discussed in a lot of detail, including the fact that in the ranges that we're talking about, it's it's almost linear, so it's not not rapidly diminishing like the greenhouse effect does, at least in isolation, it does. Uh, it it you know if you increase the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere of a greenhouse it will keep leading to more and more improvements in, in plant growth. So that's, that's one thing. Uh, another thing is an issue of, of assumption. 
uh, when when people hear that you know, CO2 has an impact on climate, the assumption is that it must be bad. And I think the best historical illustration of this is that when the more people thought that it was going to make, or at least fossil fuels would make the climate colder overall, that was considered a, a catastrophe. And then when it was thought it would make it warmer overall, that was considered a catastrophe. Um, so is there, let's ask about warming. Is there a reason to have, to be afraid of warming as such, or to think that warm man-made warming will be overall bad? Uh, no, I mean, I, I you know, uh, until you get into a detailed analysis that would really weigh a lot of different factors, um, it's it's almost impossible to say a priori that uh, that warming is inherently bad. I mean, the the default view, um, just based on a common understanding of the fact that CO two is plant food. Um, uh, of the fact that as we get warmer, um, we get more CO2 in the atmosphere, even if the CO2 itself didn't cause it. So even if there's natural variability that increases the temperature by a degree, that itself will cause more CO2 to be boiled out of the oceans. Um, and the fact that there's more CO2 in the atmosphere means the there will be more plants, and that's generally good. It means bumper crops. Uh, it means the ability to grow crops in areas that otherwise wouldn't have crops. Um, so there are, uh, there are pretty good reasons for suspecting uh, at the beginning, before you do a detailed analysis, that uh, higher temperatures, modestly higher temperatures, would actually be a good thing. But again, there are many complicated effects uh, in, in order to have any kind of level of, of certainty on this, or um, even probability. Uh, one has to do a more detailed analysis. I just want to comment on the imagery that's used in this discussion, which is incredibly unconstructive and, and usually involves the earth with a flame on it. So if you go to 350.org, they use this kind of thing all the time. I believe the cover of Inconvenient Truth has the earth becoming some sort of fireball. And I feel like the image they want or the feeling that they want is imagine the most uncomfortable you've been on a hot day and then the earth will all be like that and it'll just keep getting worse and worse and worse and there's nothing you can do about it. And I think it's worth saying that from just looking at a map of the earth and the temperatures, by far the most, there's much more unlivability due to cold than due to heat. I mean, even the hottest regions of the world are pretty close to the hottest regions, you know, places that max out at, they max out at, you know, 130 or 140. They're not maxing out at 250. And people actually live there and, you know, live there all year round. A place like Qatar is considered a, a you know, great tourist destination. That has very, very, you know, high temperatures into the 90s, 100s, very, very uh, consistently. And so if anything, if you looked at it just from a general livability perspective on average, you'd say the earth is too cold. Now, that's not to just say, oh, well, you know, there's a lot of things to discuss in terms of, of what warming would be like, but it's interesting that it's so quickly just assumed that warmer is worse. And that, that to me, is definitely caused by the fact that there's just a bias 
against man changing things versus an objective analysis about what would be good for man. Right. I mean, and one indication is you look at uh, demographics in the United States over the last 50 or 100 years, where have people been moving? They generally move from colder climates to warmer climates. I mean, for many, many decades, you know, California was the, the golden destination uh, to arrive in, uh, obviously, because in large part it was warmer than Minnesota or New York or, uh, you know, Washington State or something. Um, and, and clearly, Florida is the, the uh, quintessential place where you move when you retire because it's nice and warm. So if you if you look at the net kind of uh, demonstrated preference of people in the U.S., they want to move to warmer places. One one other note, and this I think raises an important climate dynamic that different scientists have discussed on the show, is notice that so much of the focus is on the poles, as in, oh my gosh, you know, Arctic is melting X amount, and there's tons to say about the context of that and how you had very similar things in the 20s, which aren't mentioned because they're not covered by the satellite measurements, which are very modern. But in general, you know, there used to be people fantasizing about that com that uninhabitable part of the world being habitable, like it may have been many, many millions of years ago when you know, there wasn't ice there. But in general, the, when the Earth warms overall, it's the equator is more stable, and the poles are more are the parts that warm, right? And with cooling, is that correct? Right. So I, I mean, I think it's uh, it's relatively uncontroversial that uh, if we get extra warming, it will be disproportionately uh, well. There will be two uh, two kind of interesting facts. One is uh, colder areas will warm up more than warmer areas. That's one. And two, um, it will be um, at, at, in a given location, uh, colder, uh, if, if, you, if you say take, you know, um, I don't know, St. Paul, Minnesota or something, or, or any, any particular location, it'll be the case that uh, as global temperatures rise, um, St. Paul will experience, uh, it, it'll re warm relatively more in its coldest moments of the year than in its warmest moments of the year. So it's not like the summers will get uh, warmer by a certain amount and the winters will get warmer by the same amount. The winters will actually get warmer by more and the summers by less, which is presumably desirable. Yeah, and that that's just an example of a fascinating point, a crucial point that isn't mentioned and that is deliberately uh, obscured by the discussion and certainly by this this burning uh, imagery. Because if, if you said, okay, in general, the cold, the totally freezing parts of the earth will get, those are the places that will get warmer, in place, including places like Siberia. And, you know, there wouldn't, it wouldn't generate uh, the same alarm as acting as if, well, we're all going to, everything's going to become uh, a desert. So I think this this speaks to, and this is a big topic in my chapter, how to, th the, the contrast between how to think about this dispassionately or without prejudice and how it's thought of um, and portrayed. I had one, that made... And uh, just to mention one more fact is the the propaganda about this 
is always giving the impression that like overnight temperatures are going to increase by some unhealthy amount. And in fact, what we're talking about are changes over decades and decades um, of, you know, a couple of degrees Celsius. So the, I, when there's that kind of gradual change over time, over time scales where you, you are probably going to, uh, you know, change your living location multiple times, there are just natural adaptive uh, responses that uh, even you know simple creatures who migrate by walking will make, and human beings are uh, orders of magnitude better at uh, at adapting to those kind of changes, those extremely gradual changes that occur over decades and decades. It's something that uh, you know society, if, if it's merely a question of warming a couple of degrees. Um, society is extremely well equipped to take on the task of adapting to it when we have a hundred years to do it. Yeah, that, that's another uh, point of context that that's just crucial. And the more, I mean, notice that all we're doing, so we haven't talked anything about politics. We haven't even talked anything about fossil fuels. Really, we're just talking about how nature works and it's just becoming more and more apparent how much of it is is distorted uh, so as to to scare people um, about changes. Whereas if you look at the fact that change and danger are constants, and if you look at the nature of the change that occurs, you know, with man, or, you know, without man or with man, you see, okay, this is this is not something to treat as, you know, some sort of Armageddon. It's it's or the day after tomorrow or inconvenient truth. Those are those are deliberate uh, distortions of how the world works. All right, let's go. I'm just sir, I have tons of stuff I want to talk about, and definitely it's only power hour. Unfortunately, not not power day. So let's see. I think got historical fear, history of climate change. Oh. Here's one that I want to talk about. Just the issue, uh, it's a big pet peeve of mine is that terms are not defined. So let's talk about the relationship between weather, climate, and then global climate. So th those three concepts. Uh, sure. So you, you want me to go on and try and distinguish? Yeah, and you, you can start either way. But, you know, it's the idea of, okay, there's a global climate system. There's climate as we experience it, and, there's, and then there's weather I think there's just a lot of, of misconceptions and distortions, and often the climate, you know, as such, is discussed as this uh, singular thing and measured as this. And I think there's something to that, but I think it's it's generally discussed in a way that distorts things in a well, for sure, a misleading direction, but also a hysterical direction. So I'm curious, just what what weather, climate, and global climate 101 would look like. Okay, well, let's first distinguish between weather and climate. So the basic idea is uh, climate is a, at a given location, say, is a long run average uh, over the weather. So weather fluctuates wildly. I mean, if you actually look at any given location, um, uh, except for, you know, a certain region in the world, which tends to be right around the, the equator, uh, where things don't fluctuate too much, but, you know, 
Um, take a typical location in the United States, you get, uh, you know, 20, typically, you know, 20, 30, sometimes 40 degrees of, of difference um, between, uh, you know, on average between summer and winter, say. Um, so that huge fluctuation in temperature at that location uh, over, you know, the scale of a couple of months um, is weather. Climate is averaging that all out and trying to get at the slower moving forces which systematically push weather in one direction or another, but over the time scale of decades or centuries. So with, with those two, is there some other concept? Because it seems like so much of it is just atmospheric surroundings that isn't quite captured by the term weather, which is which usually focuses on a particular, you know, changing state, like what's different about today versus yesterday or here versus there versus the, uh, I'm curious what you think about that. Uh, well, you need to distinguish to try and ask are like all of the atmosphere phenomena, all the, the storms and the, the dust bowls and, uh, the, um, you know, Santa Ana winds that you get in, in Southern California, those things are subsumed under weather, but you're asking whether they're also subsumed un under climate. Is that the question? Yeah, I'm guess. I mean, if I'll give you something I'm, I feel much clearer on, which is just the idea of environment. So, you know, environment is, is surroundings. And so I, if I think of environment from a human perspective, which is how I think about it as a human being, I, I, I can think of different levels of it, including sometimes what they call the built environment. Uh, but ultimately, it's just it's the things around me, including the rest of nature, uh, you know, and how it's causally interrelated in relationship to my life. And then part of that is what we call, uh, you know, the climate. But it's climate. I'm just wondering if there's a concept that captures just the sur climate seems to pertain i mean it's primarily a concept of atmosphere right uh yeah i mean obviously it's influenced by the oceans and the land as well um not to mention other things in space primarily the sun but also uh phenomena solar phenomena that exist around uh the earth um but i mean so there are a lot of drivers of climate, but I guess your question is, um, does climate mean just the state of the atmosphere? Uh, How do you, so within environment, I mean, if environment is the broader uh, concept, then what, what is this, what exactly is this, the part that we're circumscribing within uh, climate, the concept climate? Um, I mean, I would say clim climate is certainly most importantly involved with the atmosphere. Um, but the, the very close linkage between the land and the ocean uh, and what's going on in the atmosphere means that it's not very profitable to try and uh, divide them and refer only to atmospheric phenomena by the climate. I mean, I would, uh, I would for instance, think that the, the question of the, the temperature of the ocean is also an issue of the climate. Um, so, uh, I mean, I would say, Climate refers to uh, uh, 
processes going on uh, in the earth uh, that are um, potentially, uh, you know, large scale process, not, not very localized things like I turn on my stove um, and also things that aren't very temporary. Like also I turn on my stove for an hour as opposed to there's a systematic heating or cooling or something that's going on over a decade or longer. Interesting. Um, well, now that you mentioned just some of the elements and why you can't just think of it in terms of the atmosphere, what are the major, you know, elements of, of climate of that system that need to be understood? Because we're going to be talking about things such as what it would mean to model the climate, what it would mean to predict the climate, and then, then discussions of the climate you know, going out of whack, the climate being stable. What, what are the main uh, dynamics? And you, you, you covered this, I think, quite well in your last article on, for CIP on climate modeling. Uh, sure. So, I mean, let me just rattle off some of the main ones. So, in general, you divide them into, uh, you know, the air, the ocean, and the land. Um, uh, now, uh, is the question, what are the primary drivers? Uh, or is the question, what are the... I, I mean, I think that's probably... If, if we're talking about, for instance, what's going to affect the long-term temperatures over the United States, the, the things we're most interested in, in are the drivers of that effect, which is the temperature. And uh, so, you know, the primary one is obviously the sun. Um, uh, the, the, so the sun is the, the source of uh, most of the energy that we're talking about that comes in and out of the Earth system and uh, is going to have an effect on our climate. Um, so beside the sun, the, the kinds of factors that are involved in the climate itself, itself are things like the clouds. So that's a, that's a very important factor because clouds do multiple things. They, they reflect energy uh, back into space so that they reflect uh, light that would otherwise you know, hit the earth. They reflect it back into space that, that can cause you know, cooling or it can reduce warming. Um, uh, clouds are also a very complicated factor because their behavior is not very well understood and it's not, it's not very well modeled uh, by the climate models uh, because the, the kinds of things that affect whether clouds form or not occur, can occur on very relatively small spatial scales. Uh, so you can get um, you know, many, many small clouds forming for reasons that aren't well captured in a model which takes you know, uh, miles and miles of land as a single irreducible unit or miles and miles of the surface of the Earth, I'd say. Um, so uh, clouds are one. There, there are many phenomena which, going on, which go on in the ocean, some of which are understood, some of which aren't, uh, that have power, powerful effects on the climate. I mean, for one, you know, there, there's gas being released from the ocean. So, for instance, um, I, I mentioned before that as, uh, as, as we get warmer on the surface of the Earth, as the oceans themselves get warmer, they emit more carbon dioxide. That's um, one of the phenomena known, known as feedback mechanisms uh, that are involved in um, 
aside from simple uh, uh, effects like the, the greenhouse effect, there are much more complicated effects that um, who, whose behavior themselves depend upon how warm it is. Uh, so clearly, uh, clouds, uh, uh, heat phenomena in the oceans are two effects. There are, for instance, volcanic activity is a, is a, has a huge impact on the climate. Um, so when volcanoes explode and spit up uh, a bunch of uh, you know, small particles of matter, ashes essentially, that are very fine and can travel long distances and stay up in the atmosphere for a long period of time, um, what, you're, what those part of those, that particulate matter can do is just like clouds reflect more light back into space. Um, and it's you know, hypothesized that 60 million years ago or so, um, uh, an, uh, an impact of a, uh, some kind of uh, comet or asteroid, really an asteroid probably, into the Earth, kind of like uh, you know, sparked something that you could think of as a massive kind of volcanic moment where uh, it, in that it, it generated a huge amount of this particulate matter which went over the whole globe and reflected a whole lot of sunlight back into space and prevented that light from warming the Earth. So that's a dramatic instance of what the kind of particulate matter that you also get spewing up from volcanoes, um, an instance of how that can affect the climate. Um, so these are a couple of effects, but there are, there are many, many. And the, the real question that goes into the, the larger uh, goal of modeling the climate is not merely ticking off a couple of these effects from some God-given catalog of all of the effects that we know and, and analyzing each one. It's identifying which effects are primary and, and substantial. I mean, there, there could be a number of effects that we don't even know about. Um, and we can go into that in more detail if you want. Uh, yeah, I'll make a note of that. Um, but I have a couple of... of more basic questions that are raised by that and some other things. Uh, I think one thing that's important to ask and, and to understand with CO2, particularly given that the term you know, climate change is so in vogue, and I, I don't have as much of a problem with that term as I used to if people understand it as what's being posited is a major global climate change in the warming uh, direction. But with with you know it's usually i think it's more practical purposes people notice hey there's a lot of cold a lot of storms and you know so it's a lot more convenient to just be able to blame everything on on co2 emissions which raises the issue of with the greenhouse effect and any other known effects what if any effects does co2 have on the climate system besides warming because it seems like it's it's asserted that it's implicitly asserted that oh it does all of these other scary things in addition to warming well i mean oh, oh uh okay so there are certain effects which people have postulated like that um more uh more co2 in the atmosphere will cause the oceans to be more acidic um frankly i mean most of the negative feet or the 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 feedback mechanisms that people think are dangerous 
are associated with uh, warming, not so much the presence of CO2 itself. Um, uh, but I mean, clearly there are potentially positive impacts that, that CO2 is going to have on the surface of the earth as far as humans are concerned as well. Well, I guess uh, we, we've talked about in the past just the that the main thing that even even the catastrophists are asserting. So when when Bill McKibben says that the world is worse than ever and blames everything on fossil fuels, he's blaming it on the warming that they're causing and asserting that the amount of warming that's occurred so far that do, is is causing all. So it's it's that warming is causing all of these. That's Right. That seems to be the, the idea, which is called into question by the fairly mild amount of it by historical standards. But that I think it's important that it is it is warming that is that is, I mean, at least the proxy demon. Right. I mean, so with a couple like the, the kind of the minor exception of something like um, uh, the, the effect of CO2 on the uh, pH level of the oceans, um, the, the, all of the, the main uh, supposed catastrophic effect, effects of CO2 are not that the gas CO2 itself will do something dangerous. It's that the gas CO2 will, through the greenhouse effect and primarily a number of much more complicated hypothetical feedback mechanisms, or at least hypothetically important feedback me mechanisms, that the warming as a result of those, uh, of those effects, both the greenhouse effect and the feedbacks, the warming itself, the higher temperatures, um, is what's said to, to be potentially catastrophic. Uh, and so one doesn't have to worry about some kind of dangerous gas seeping into one's lungs and, and performing all kinds of nefarious chemical changes uh, over the globe. It's really just a question of how much warming there is. But I think it's more, I think it's not so much the idea of seeping into one's lungs, but the idea that, well, somehow that CO2 is causing Hurricane Sandy or causing it to be a lot bigger than it otherwise would be. Right. And the theory is definitely not that CO2 is directly causing that, like it's some kind of potent nucleator of hurricanes. Um, CO2 has itself the gas has no effect on, there's no reason to believe it has any significant effect on how many hurricanes occur. The, the theory is merely that because it's warmer, that's going to influence the climate in a, in a much broader way and, for instance, create more hurricanes, some people suggest. Although the evidence is essentially nil that there's been any significant increase in uh, hurricane, in, in the, um, the problem of hurricanes over, say, the last hundred years. All right. Well, that that raises a couple of issues, and and we're seeing that this this power hour is definitely going to be devoted to the first section. But the first section is also um, the one of the more scientific sections that you know uh, all kinds of fun questions come up as as we're talking about this. One thing I was thinking of was the the fallacy of blaming specific weather events on on fossil fuels and i'm happy to hear anything generally you have to say but one thing that occurs to me is that even if so if you take that that you know the amount of warming so far has had some significant impact on climate system and that's a lot of things have changed 
even if the number of storms had increased by 20%, which I don't think is true whatsoever, uh, and there's even a question of, of how I think you could take many multiples times more storms in many ways if it, if it was about giving up energy, if that was the alternative. But even 20%, if, if things are changing, isn't by the nature of change, wouldn't many places be saved from storms by this phenomenon in the same way that places are being hit? So you could say on average, you know, you're 20% more likely, but as a practical matter, it's, it's averted all sorts of crises. Uh, well, it's certainly true that, you know, if there's a substantial change in the amount of storminess, there probably will be places that, um, or a, a particular given storm that would have existed before may not exist in, uh, you know, given the warming. Um, but uh, if you accept the idea that storms themselves are, are potentially dangerous phenomena, in general, you would say an increase in storms all else being equal is a negative phenomenon, you know, is a negative phenomenon for human beings. But the real question to me is, um, is how much worse is it to have a 20% increase in the number of storms you have to deal with? I mean, it seems on some kind of microscopic level on your day-to-day -day life, yeah, storm is an annoyance. But the, one always has to keep in mind what we're what are the benefits that we're weighing against these hypothetical costs? And the benefits are the difference between living in a, hom a hovel in Bangladesh and living in, you know, a suburban house uh, in uh, Orange County. And that difference is so huge in terms of our ability to deal with something like storms. I mean, one can't imagine the amount of storminess that how much uh, what amount of storminess we would have to we would have to have in addition to our current level of storminess how much storminess would have to increase in order that one would decide one prefers to live in a hovel in Bangladesh because the the draconian uh, um, cuts that are suggested that we need to make to have any effect on, uh, on the climate cuts in terms of CO2 emissions and therefore our energy usage those cuts are so large that it really would be the difference for many, many people over the next hundred years between living in a hovel and living in a, in a, in a suburban house. Yeah. Or living in a suburban house and dying in a hovel in, right. in, you know, in, in many cases, I mean, you see death tolls in the hundreds of thousands. What storm in even the U S in a highly populated area is going to hundreds of thousands. I mean, that, that's almost, it's pretty unbelievable uh, to imagine. And then even then, uh, one thing I talk about in the chapter is just that one of the amazing things about having modern technology, which is fueled by, by modern energy, is that you get to choose where you live. You have mobility, which is one of your ultimate uh, ways of increasing the livability of your climate. So you don't have to live in a coastal place if you don't want to. And you can avoid, if you're afraid of certain storms, you, you can avoid that. Uh, you can, you know, leave in the winter. I mean, there's a lot more to say about that. Uh, but I want to ask a couple more uh, of the basic science questions. And here's a more epistemological slash, you know, nature of knowledge question about how, how you would know about significant changes in climate. So the at least the way in which it's communicated to the public is you hear, um, 
you hear just a random thing about hurricanes at record high this year, sometimes hurricanes at record low, that's global weirding. And what if with a serious scientist who seriously and honestly communicates with the public, what what are the types of trends that they look for as significant and how do they communicate those with the public? Uh, trends in terms of the impact of climate on on human beings. So well, that that more broadly, but even even say measuring storm activity. I mean, maybe it's it's too multifaceted a question, but measuring things like the Arctic, it just I feel like there's such little discussion of trends and their significance in you know, over hundreds of years, let alone geologic time, it's just everything is unprecedented and scary and due to fossil fuels. Right. I mean, we've talked about this a little before. I mean, uh, to a certain extent, it's it's almost kind of pointless to try and abstract, uh, put it this way. So in when you're trying to model climate, there, there are certain phenomena, like say the activity of the sun or volcanoes, um, or the, you know, certain currents, um, large-scale currents in the oceans that have a big effect on climate systems around the world. Um, those things are the kinds of objective variables that you would want to measure um, that you, you kind of choose because they're particularly important for the dynamics of the climate insofar as we can, you know, estimate the effects of uh, various drivers on those dynamics. Um, but anytime you, uh, whenever you talk about trends to, in, or, in order to measure kind of the overall course of the climate, apart from uh, the, the goal of building some kind of physical model for them, you really, it's, it's a human centric concept because what we're interested in are certain aspects of the climate that are relevant to human beings. So there, there are, I'm sure, a number of aspects of the climate that are totally irrelevant to human beings. For instance, um, the, uh, the, the uh, you know, maybe the temperature in the upper atmosphere. So if we found that the temperature in the, in the farthest reaches of the atmosphere had, you know, double the warming as uh, temperatures um, around the, the bottom of the atmosphere where we actually reside, that wouldn't be nearly as important um, as if, you know, there were double the amount of warming uh, in the lower parts of the atmosphere. So any time you select a particular variable to track, it, uh, it usually, it ought to be something that you're, you're defining because it's relevant to human beings. But even there, there are there are epistemological standards of of putting them in context, which is a lot different from this is a really, you know, this is the biggest hurricane quote on record, which can mean 40 years or something. Just with, it just seems like there's no sense of proportion. And there, there's a site I like a lot by this guy, Stephen Goddard. I don't know if that's his real name or a pseudonym, but he'll just, whenever one of these modern claims comes up, he'll just show endless news clips from history where the exact same thing is claimed and is often obviously much, much worse than today. So it seems like even on the level of identifying the trends, it's, it's that 
trends aren't being identified in an objective way, but I, I don't, I can't exactly say, okay, here's how you should communicate trends to people, except that that you should make clear that most of these things are not sort of shockingly different uh, and dangerously different, and that also uh, there's geologic time. Right. I, I think I see what you're getting at. So um, I, the, the question is not so much which particular variables you're using. It's given a variable, how do you communicate the relative importance of um, of or the how unprecedented recent changes in that variable yes, have been. Exactly. I mean, the, the classic example of this is um, these temperature records that you always hear about. Like this is the uh, the you know the warmest decade um, in the that we've ever measured or that we've ever attempted to estimate over the last um, you know hundred and fifty years that we've been collecting temperature records. Well. And, and you'll, you'll hear for, for the, like a small town in California, this is the warmest week it's ever had in the last 150 years. Well, now, that's not surprising at all that one could manufacture tons and tons, especially when you consider all the individual localities. It's not surprising that you could manufacture tons and tons of these quote unquote records. And the reason is very simple. The climate cooled uh, uh, quite substantially and was cooler over roughly, you know, between the time period of, say, 1300 and 1800 uh, A.D. Um, and it, since 1800 or so, it's been warming back up. Now, clearly that warming um, is not at all entirely uh, or certainly for the first 100, 150 years of it, it had really nothing to do with CO2. And, and perhaps CO2 has been... Um, a more substantial contributor over the last 60 or 70 years. Uh, um, but a, the lion's share of that warming over that time period was simply natural variability. It was the natural variability of, of the climate system over, over many decades. And the fact that we're warming up out of this, uh, quote unquote, little ice age from 1300 to 1800 or so, um, that is uh, just kind of artificially means that the most recent temperatures are going to be the warmest temperature. Um, so the real question is, is there anything in these records which indicates an unprecedented degree of warming, that a degree of warming that uh, a rapidity of warming over large parts of the globe that is like a, a signature of some extremely strange process? And the answer is absolutely not. I mean, when you look at the um, uncontroversial, generally agreed on temperature record over the last 150 years, the rate of warming over, uh, you know, even during the period in which it was fastest in very recent history, say, um, you know, from 1980 or so to, uh, to around 2000, that 20 year period, um, it's it's not at all an unprecedented rate. It's it's uh, you can identify other periods in that uh, over that 150 year uh, time horizon that had comparable rates of warming. So these records they need to be taken they need to be first uh, kind of understood in the context of how uh, the the. St relative statistical improbability or 
or probability of being able to cherry pick data. Um, anytime you have a bunch of random variables, so in, in this case, you have a bunch of different locations whose, whose weather is being um, influenced by a whole bunch of different, mostly random factors. Um, anytime you have that wealth of data, you can always mine it. You can always cherry pick individual random eventualities within that data that look like they're exceptional. Uh, but the question is, are they really exceptional for some systematic reason or have you just cherry picked the data? Um, so I think that's the thing you're getting at. And, and the, the catastrophic propagandists have definitely done their share of mining all of these highly localized records that in a statistical sense wouldn't at all be indications of something unprecedented. Uh, all right, great stuff. Well, I'll just indicate to people sections that won't have time to cover today, um, particularly, well, we covered it a little bit, but what I call climate enhancement or climate mastery, my, my view of technology's role in, in climate in terms of making it livable just gets more and more positive the more I think about it, and thus it's, among other things, it's more and more of a crime, as Eric indicated, that people are 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 enforcing policy or trying to pass policies that would force people or or allow them disallow them to get out of their hovels in the name of their well-being as far as as climate is concerned so there's that that thing there's lots of interesting stuff to say there um, and then there's lots of interesting stuff to say including eric's last article in master resource about the failure of models we discussed that in the last power hour uh with with eric in the last couple minutes that we have I want to focus on um, the hypothetical, because I think it's, it's very illustrative of how to think about the issue and how badly it's handled. The hypothetical of if there was uh, a major problem. And I want to explore two questions. The one I want to start with is, let's say that there were a big problem with um, you know, CO2's warming impact on climate. And let's let's even say a problem that we regard as catastrophic. I when I think about it concretely, I find it very very hard to make that real. I mean, for example, you hear in there's a consensus so-called that two degrees Celsius will just be this tipping point. We can't come back. That seems insane to me. Like completely defying all knowledge of. How we how we deal with climate, but what would have to happen for it to be truly catastrophic so that we would need very broad-based policies? Given how damn adaptable human beings are. Yeah, I mean that's a good question. So clearly, one can imagine a kind of natural event. Um, that would be catastrophic and would require a real kind of society hunkering down and, and thinking about a radical kind of program it would have to undertake to avert. For instance, if we identified some kind of asteroid of sufficient mass that were on course to collide with the Earth. Um, that, so so it's, it's not like those kind of events are inconceivable. Um, and, and again, maybe that kind of the maybe the best way to think about this is to look at the actual historical data and to think what kinds of things could happen to the Earth's climate um, 
that not not things that we could arbitrarily dream up dream up in some completely unfounded hypothesis, but things that have demonstrated they can actually happen. Uh, so you know if, if you and 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 those kinds of things um, that would in fact be catastrophic. I mean we have records of them. For instance, we have you know physical geological records of them. For instance, you know these asteroid craters. The, the large crater off the the coast of the the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico, um, that was perhaps um, you know a, a record of the the event that caused the death of the the dinosaurs 60 million years ago. So if, if we look back, we can imagine an event like that, or um, uh, some kind of extremely intense. Uh, volcanic activity that were for some other reason sparked and that were spewing huge amounts of ash and particulate matter up into the atmosphere that would cause really a, a dramatic global cooling. That Those kinds of events, one could at least conceive of them. Um, it's hard to imagine how a couple of degrees uh, warming in the atmosphere over, uh, you know, performed over many, many decades could really be in the ballpark of that. Well, what if what if what if we were to even say, you know, the UN keeps revising its its numbers here, but let, let's say we were. To, I mean, the, the the number I hear from McKibben and some others is, you know, six degrees Celsius, eleven uh, Fahrenheit over a hundred years. Even there, I mean, I don't. I mean, you can adapt to that a lot better than you can adapt to lack of energy. Uh, I mean, what? I mean, maybe this is the way to put it. What What are the different things that can really prevent? It seems like rapidity would be a big issue, particularly with something like sea levels and yeah. adaptation. So I think if you're talking about you know six degrees Celsius, so eleven degrees Fahrenheit. Um, you know, you can imagine this. What's the overall impact of just that temperature increase itself on human society? Well, it's equivalent to people moving a certain number of miles south in the United States. Um, you know, if, if you put it in those terms and your your task becomes, OK, this is equivalent to you moving a couple of hundred miles south and you have 100 years to do it. Clearly, that's not at all a catastrophe. Now, the question the the question is, what knock-on effects would a uh, an 11 degree Fahrenheit increase in global temperatures have on other phenomena, like, for instance, sea levels? But I mean, when we actually look at the data, um, if if uh, sea levels were something that were that were super sensitive uh, to uh, global temperature, um, and that in particular were sensitive to the kind of recent increases in global temperature that we've seen, uh, or in particular increases in CO2-driven uh, warming that we've seen over the last 60 years or 50 years, um, there should be some indication in the actual observed sea levels in this. You, you would expect that, uh, you know, the way McKibben talks about over the last two or three decades that there's been this dramatic, really threatening uh, set of climate events that has been occurring. If you look at how ocean level has risen over the last 100 years or so, it's been extremely stable. Um, there hasn't been any kind of indication of some 
some kind of runaway increase in the level of the oceans. Um, so obviously, the question becomes more complicated uh, uh, if you if you want to have some kind of really accurate analysis that you have a lot of confidence in. But you know, frankly, the data itself, um, when you look at it, gives very little cause for a concern about something catastrophic. It indicates that over a time period of hundreds of years, there almost certainly will be uh, climatological effects which we we will have to adapt to. But the idea of some imminent catastrophe um, is just there's no there's no basis for it. There's no in, in the data itself. There's no smoking gun at all. Of the types of of consequences or knock on effects that are posited, and I think. No, of them, the most plausible and connected to warming, at least have plausible in the face of it, are things like sea level. Um, drought doesn't seem that plausible because the whole thing is there's also more moisture and it seems like, I mean, Pierre Durocher on the show has talked about warmer world as a wetter world. I'm, and storm, you know, we talked about storms. I mean, unless there's just this, this trend of just unprecedented i mean you can sort of fabricate like a godzilla storm all the time or but particularly like things that just can wipe out anything that beyond that okay so i can imagine that i'm just trying to even imagine something that causally could could really be this this game changer because catastrophe is talked about so vaguely or in these just earth is on fire scenarios i can think of that maybe and then Okay, yeah, sea levels rise 20 feet really quickly, that would seem like a big issue. What's your sense of, like, what, if you, if you had to make a scare scenario, what would it be? Because if we look at most of the scare scenarios, I don't think they're that scary given the power of technology. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a good question. So, uh, you know, Given what we know about the climate, you can you can ask the question, assuming there is a terrible event, what is the most likely source of or assuming there is some kind of terrible effect on humanity? What is the most likely event that would be the cause of that? Um, that's that's of the of the set of things that are climate based. Uh, and and frankly, I mean, looking at the data. Uh, you know, and, and looking at what we know about history, um, I would say worrying about something like an asteroid collision uh, is more plausible than worrying about something like 20 feet of sea level rise over a couple of years. That kind of that kind of event seems so improbable, given the data, that um, it, it, it's just not something that kind of bears any concern, whereas we know things like asteroids, I mean, we just had this event, uh, uh, you know, I, I believe over the last year, there was, uh, there was a, uh, some kind of, uh, you know, uh, asteroid uh, meteorite type body that exploded over an area in Russia that was similar to a, an event that occurred uh, in 1908 in Tunguska. Um, those kinds of things, we know they happen. We know uh, and, you know, those are relatively small on a global scale, but on a more regional scale, those kind of events can be appreciable. I, it seems much more likely that the kind of event that we've actually observed in the past 
um, that we have records of you know, doing serious, at least regional damage, those are the kinds of events that one would want to worry about and not some artificially constructed fantasy of the ocean rising 20 feet in a couple of years, which there's just no basis for. But then the, the regional ones seem like, I mean, you mentioned the point about storms earlier that you just, it's hard to imagine an, an amount of multiplication that would be problematic relative to the loss of energy and industrial civilization and technology with which to deal with all of life, including storms. They said there's going to be five times more storms, but you get to keep using energy, you know, with total liberation, I'd say, okay, I would take it. Right. I mean, something like literally five times more storms, it would be a very serious nuisance to human society. It would, it would definitely, um, you know, it, it would be tragic in the sense that there would definitely be more deaths around the world, but for, uh, for, uh, you know, industrial societies, the, the damage by something like a, a rather substantial increase in the amount of storminess just pales in comparison to the amount of damage that would be done by just abandoning uh, efficient, uh, uh, you know, um, effective sources of energy. Um, so that's always the standard that, that one I'll be judging against. Mm-hmm. All right, so it's... This is the last last question. We're having trouble. I mean, what's coming up is that this idea of catastrophe has a very high level of arbitrariness to it in many dimensions, including just likelihood of something extremely dramatic. And then even something dramatic by normal standards being catastrophic on the order that their policies would be uh, catastrophic. But let, let's say, you know, we had... We had a situation where, because I think it's a valuable thought experiment, where, I mean, let's take storms. You know, fossil fuels are multiplying the number of storms in a way that, you know, may be, it gets to a point where it's it's getting quite destructive a lot of places. People get the sense that, you know, there may be some, may warrant some sort of policy. What would, if you were to describe broadly and maybe narrow it down a little bit, or subdivided, but what's your sense of how a proper um, scientific and political community would respond? Because what I'm getting at is that I think that even if they were right that there is a you know, substantial danger risk to be concerned about, that their behavior about it is wildly inappropriate in many ways. Right. And so let's just assume for the sake of argument that there were some uh, some you know, real serious increasing climate danger over the scale of a couple of decades or even over the scale of, you know, 10 or 20 years. Um, what, how would, how would humans best respond to this uh, is, is the question I think you're asking. And, and would it be along the lines that they're proposing for this much more modest, hypothesized uh, um, eventuality where global temperatures rise a couple of degrees over a hundred years. And so I think the thing, the thing that traps a lot of people or, or, or the, the aspect that they just don't really consider, um, is that the, the model that they have is that we'll quote unquote identify the, the danger and then 
there will be a bunch of smart experts who get together and determine what the optimal kind of response is, and they will be given power over large as aspects of the economy to change certain things and add certain other incentives. Um, and they'll kind of do as best they can. They won't be perfect, but they're smart guys. They'll do as best they can to you know, figure out how to, how to address the problem. Now, I would, I would like people who have that model of how we would deal with a, a, a serious imminent climate danger to think about one, uh, one single episode in, in the history of uh, you know, large-scale human governments that have governed large, complicated societies in which something similar to that has happened. Um, it, it's pretty rare. I mean, the, the much more frequent phenomenon is that, uh, that a government or agitators within a society will convince people that there's a huge imminent problem um, and they will create a, a, a set of institutions and a bureaucracy whose goal it is to deal with that problem, but one who aren't really accountable because there's no effective institutional setup for them to be accountable. Um, and, and two, the real incentives will, will not be some kind of globalized concern for, uh, for human society. It'll be the individual uh, pluses and minuses that they face in expanding their own jobs and, uh, and you know, enriching their friends and their cronies. Um, so given the actual history of how governments work when they take on big projects, one has to ask, um, uh, you know, even if there were something that were, that were a serious imminent danger, um, what are the dangers of handing over a huge amount of power to a bunch of government bureaucrats? Uh, and that, and I think the answer to that, I mean, historically, if you look at examples, uh, just, just take, take one, which is pretty obvious which is that what is an actual imminent danger for the United States over 30 years that's, in my mind, much, much greater, even though I, I'm not particularly concerned about it, it's still much, much greater in my mind than, than the danger of a serious climate catastrophe. I would say, you know, a foreign country getting nuclear weapons and, you know, us getting involved in some conflict that elevated to a nuclear war. That seems like a danger. We know physically it could happen if certain humans, human beings make certain decisions, um, it's quite possible that something like that would happen, although I don't rate it as probable at all. But we have a means of dealing with that problem, and that is, you know, in general, um, at, at least at the last resort, the United States military. And so the military is clearly, there's a legitimate global danger that the military has been created to face. And then, but you have to ask yourself, um, is the uh, you know seven hundred billion dollars we spend every year on the military? Um, how much of that is effectively addressing that legitimate problem that we actually face? Um, are, are are troops who are residing in Korea or Germany uh, or for that matter right now Iraq or Afghanistan um, really uh, contributing to to the uh, our safety in terms of not being attacked in some large scale way. 
Um, I think the answer is that to some degree they are, but the, the expense of the, uh, the military is, is substantially over the, the, the necessary expense that we would be incurred by people um, who were really accountable for accomplishing just that goal, namely, namely the goal of protecting us. So um, it, it's, it's hard to imagine that if you ceded the amount of power that would be necessary to, uh, to dramatically transform our carbon emission profile, if you ceded that power to a bunch of bureaucrats, it's extremely hard to imagine that they would really use that power in any economically efficient way. Well, that raised a whole bunch of interesting questions about uh, military, and you know, I think we both believe in you know the absolute importance of having a military, of having a government, and so are you. Is the is the nature of that that you accept a certain comparative inefficiency, or is there a way of of ha giving it a single goal and a and a category of accountability? Um, well, I guess what I'm saying in regard to the military is just that the military exists for a real objective purpose. That there's there's you know uh, there's qu quite ample evidence that the kinds of things that you're worried about that a military protects you against those things are real. Um, the, the probability that a terrible event could occur as a result of other nations around the world, that's, it's not a huge probability, but it, it's right now, it's, it's, I would say, an, a probability that you really have to objectively pay attention to. And the, the amount that we, despite the fact that the amount that we spend on the military is extremely high and could be substantially lower, it's still, it's, it's, um, we're willing to accept uh, a, a certain degree of inefficiency, and I would say a very large degree of inefficiency, because the effect we're combating is objective. It's, uh, it's demonstrable. Um, so th the real question is comparing the, the kind of scenario in which you'd, uh, you, a military would really be required in order to pre prevent something that could be catastrophic for the country, comparing that to the scenario in which there's a climatological event which would be catastrophic for the country. I mean, those two scenarios are not really comparable to me. The, the, the climate cat catastrophe scenario, given the amount of evidence um, in the actual rep record of climate data for a scenario like that occurring, um, and, and given the uh, the, uh, um, the, let me say, the paucity of reasons to believe um, catastrophic scenario predictions made by elaborate climate models, um, there's just no real comparison uh, between like the military scenario and the climate scenario. And so like, I, I think that's what you have, but the our experience with large-scale government projects is what you have to take into account when you think about the, the amount of uh, the, the, the quantity of resources that would be necessary to put under the control of government bureaucrats in order to have any effect, any noticeable effect whatsoever on, for instance, our carbon emissions. Um, really, even that's it, because I was thinking of a totally different answer. I mean, what if, what if, do you mean because of the global nature of it? I mean, you know, you, they pass regulations on other sorts of emissions. 
with some amount of success. Uh, sure, but uh, the point is, if they if they have enough power to to reduce, if governments around the world have enough power, including the U.S. government, have enough power to reduce uh, substantially, you know, like McKibben's figure is he wants 85 percent. But even even less than that, if they have enough power to reduce by you know 10 or 20 or or uh, 30 percent our carbon emissions, that will imply a huge amount of economic power, and it's extremely improbable that the way they will use that power is by making um, simple, easy to understand uh, changes to to the economy. They're, what they're incented to do is make their uh, their regulatory control as complicated as possible. That uh, that's that's the nature of uh, incentives of regulators in kind of a mixed economy. That their power increases um, as the complexity of their regulatory regime increases, and that means that they will get their fingers um, in very complicated ways into all different parts of the economy. Um, and and ceding that kind of power to to regulators is economically extremely dangerous. Interesting. Well, I want to just, in closing, raise uh, another angle on, on the issue, which, which I was thinking of and which I'm going to discuss in the book, which is just that to contrast, if if there's a significant um, you know, possibility or probability of you know, an increase in, in danger that might warrant some action, how, how that community the community that's focused on that would act versus how it acts today. So I think for sure a couple of aspects. One, I mean, you would be, uh, you know, you would acknowledge, you'd be precise about degrees of probability and uncertainty, whereas now it's just viewed as, well, if we use this, we'll definitely get to two degrees and two degrees is definitely a catastrophe. That is just complete garbage and, and dishonest. Uh, another thing is that you wouldn't, you would acknowledge that it's an interdisciplinary question where the ultimate key question is how does this affect human survival? And so the idea that getting, you know, Michael Mann and a handful of other paleoclimatologists or climate modelers and then saying that they should, they should determine the future of the world and we should defer to them, even if they, even if those were mature, more mature and successful fields. You know, that wouldn't be like that at all. They'd acknowledge each person would acknowledge, look, there, this is a complex question and we want we want an open discussion of all of it. Another element is it would be an open discussion and people would be more than happy to explain their viewpoints and to address publicly skeptics. They would not demonize them because they would understand that everyone needs to understand this from on their own, whether the general public or other specialists, because no one can be an expert at every aspect, and that the public would legitimately be very concerned about any negative, so they have a big burden of explanation. Another aspect is that they would be extremely sad about it. They wouldn't just be vitriolic toward fossil fuels or act like this is the green opportunity of a lifetime. They would recognize that it's a major loss, and they would they would consider it, it tragic, you know, versus just Fossil fuels are public enemy number one. How dare they power our civilization? Uh, it's you know they're an addiction, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, another thing is absolutely you'd want every technology. They the first step would be to liberate liberate people 
uh, economically and technologically. So you you'd first look at, okay, how can we increase economic freedom such that more basic research can occur that will lead to, you know, potential substitutes. And then of known substitutes like nuclear power, you would for sure have that on the table, certainly would have hydroelectric on the table, not shutting down so many dams. You would have, uh, I think, even geoengineering on the table. I don't know too much about that, but the point is you'd be, you'd want all technological resources uh, available. The idea of focusing on the, the worst, which are solar and wind and biofuels, just shows that there's a prejudice for these so-called renewable natural things rather than anything man-made that's good. Uh, and let's see. And yeah, and, and I think just in general, it would be, it would just be a very, it would be the kind of thing where people, there wouldn't be any of the, the vitriol, the, the rhetoric that there is today. It would just be a very serious and somber and resourceful thing. And, and I think the fact that it's the opposite, that it's this authoritarian energy, you know, devaluing uh, scare scenario using anti-nuclear, anti-hydro, uh, non-big picture, pseudo-certainty, authoritarian, the whole nature of this is just completely corrupt and suggests that, and I think ultimately really it's, you can prove that what's really going on here is that it's not that they're so confident about this. It's this, there's just a very deep-seated opposition to man significantly changing the world around him, and thus the idea of man changing the climate in any way, positive or negative, is so offensive that it's, you know, the equivalent of, you know, blasphemy against God, and we have to have the equivalent of going to hell and, and promising hell. Uh, Eric, any final thoughts on, on that? Uh, yeah, I, those are very interesting points. I, the only thing I would add or at least emphasize um, is, is just that if you look at the catastrophists' uh, level of sophistication of how they approach um, wind and solar as energy sources, you can see exactly what you were saying, which was a a really a kind of Pollyanna attitude that isn't really, cons I mean, if, if they really thought there was this crisis, you would think they would have a, a much more critical take on these uh, sources of energy that have been total failures in the decades over which they've been tried. And just like you were saying, there would be a real sense of worry um, instead of this this kind of blase attitude about, oh, well, just innovation, it, it, it's, it's, it's going to solve all of these intractable in, problems. Um, it, it seems utterly naive to, uh, to, to imagine that if the problem were as big as they really thought, uh, that they would focus on proven losers like solar and wind um, and especially as you were saying that they would they would have this ideological animus against something like nuclear. Yeah, well, you, you highlighted an aspect there that, that I don't think I highlighted enough. And, and 
I wasn't thinking of enough, so I, I like that a lot in terms of the, the Pollyanna-ish attitude. And, um, yeah, and, and I've used the analogy, and I, I stand by it, of, of you know, saying renewables, so-called, are superior to fossil fuels, like saying, you know, we should use uh, wood and skyscrapers instead of steel. And imagine that you had a global project where everywhere you use steel, you know, this non-renewable thing, we need to use renewable wood. But, you know, a sophisticated kind that has all the properties and can just do just as well. So you have these two things. One is you actually have to make it work, which nobody has done. You have to make it, you have to make it the same caliber. And then you have to go through the motions of replacing it. Well, because we see buildings all over the place, this would seem like a very, very problematic thing, right? You'd have to tear down all the buildings. You'd have to reconstruct them. And you have to do this with something you don't even know works and you don't even know can work. The fact that you just come up with an idea randomly doesn't mean that it's going to work or that it, it and whether things are affordable matters. You can't afford everything. You know, there's the world can't afford for everyone to go to the moon. Uh, so just the, the lack of, of thought of this uh, is, is, is very scary because then what happens is you spend a huge amount of resources and destroy, you know, both using using resources and then and really destroying your your energy capacity, and at the end you're left with a bunch of demolished buildings and you know a crappy wood formula. Right, and and one thing that I noticed in that uh, that the, the the catastrophists are guilty of is uh, a total misconception of how innovation works. It doesn't work by making an arbitrary demand and setting up a timetable of, okay, in 20 years, we're going to perform this revolutionary task to accomplish goals A, B, and C that I'm going to precisely specify. I mean, innovation occurs in all kinds of unpredictable ways. Certain problems that we think are relatively tractable turn out to be extremely difficult. Other problems that we couldn't even imagine we would have solved um, turn out to have really practical kind of solutions that are just a few steps in the future. And there's no effective way to predict that precisely because it's the, spontane the spontaneity and creativity of the human mind that, that is responsible for them. And if we were capable of predicting them, we would be capable of, of uh, you know, achieving that innovation right now at the beginning. So the, the nature of innovation is really belies the, the program they have the kind of dictatorial program that they have for demanding, you know, our civilization must, must perform X, Y, and Z major revolutionary innovations, uh, you know, in two or three decades, um, and and we're simply going to mandate it. That that model of innovation is crazy. Well, I think the one thing that gives plausibility to it, which is is related to you know your interest in science and in economics, is is this fallacy that. Well, we need a Manhattan Project. Like we had a Manhattan Project, and we got a bomb, and we had a space got a space program, and went to the moon. And uh, I'll let you close on this. But the thing, one thing you've stressed to me over the years is just the difference between an engineering problem and an economic problem. And it's very different. And to use the moon example, it's a different category of thing, not a hundred percent unrelated. To say let's let's use let's use sort of as many resources as we need. Like everyone in the world will contribute as many resources in the US as we need to get one person on the moon. So there the focus is just 
is there any conceivable way you can perform a certain category of physical feat? So that is one question, and it's an important question, and it's a question that is a sub-question within the economic realm, which is, can you create this new type of value in a way that people can actually afford it? Because there's no use in creating just one. And here what we're talking about is, can you create, it's not just some solar jerry-rigged thing that works in one neighborhood of totally rich people for five years until it collapses. No, it's it's can you have cheap, plentiful, reliable energy? Can everyone have that in the way or better that we have it from fossil fuels? And that is, and that's the same thing as the wood in the um, in the you know in the buildings. You there's no way you can just make that up. You, you essentially what you're doing is you're you're saying let's concoct one of the least efficient allocation of resources imaginable and then force people to make it efficient. And if they can't, well, don't you believe in innovation? What do you think of that? I, I think that's a great point about the, the difference between the narrower technical innovation and a an economically impactful innovation. And you, you raise like the the you know paradigmatic uh, or sorry, the canonical uh, example people will use of, oh, let's do a Manhattan project for energy. And your point is exactly right. And, and, and you can see an illustration of that point by looking at that very example, the example of uh, government-sponsored nuclear energy programs. So the Manhattan project was, just like you were saying, an extremely narrow kind of project. It was, it was a, staffed by extremely powerful geniuses um, who did something really tremendous and scientifically amazing. Um, nevertheless, it was the accomplishment of a specific technical goal. Now, um, there was a, a similar technical goal that was, uh, so the, the Manhattan Project was the project of building a, 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 a bomb based on nuclear fission. Now, it turns out that people have identified that nuclear fusion um, is a an even uh, Theoretically, hypothetically, it's a uh, a better form of power than nuclear fission if you were to get it to work uh, because it doesn't have um, the radiative uh, um, uh, uh, byproducts that are dangerous to human beings that nuclear fission has. So the um, now nuclear fission, the uh, rather nuclear fusion. The interesting thing about this example is that while just like fission. Uh, you know, within 10 years or so of the ending of World War II, we were uh, we achieved uh, a technical uh, ability to create uh, nuclear fusion and to control it. Um, there was then, as opposed to the uh, Manhattan Project, there was not only the technical goal of achieving fusion, but the economic goal of creating something that could actually plug into the economy and be useful. Um, and it turns out that, you know, looking at the, the, the history of nuclear fusion research, it was a great example of cons a constant stream of promises uh, that, have, that have been going on now for 50 years of how it's just around the corner, that we're, we're just on the verge of getting economically viable nuclear fusion, um, but we simply don't get it. Uh, so the the problem of not merely cre like uh, introducing a huge concentrated effort to achieve a specific 
physical, technical goal, but the ability to produce something that's economically transformative, that's self-sustaining on an, uh, on an economic basis, um, and not merely something that's a physical goal that's accomplished. That's an entirely different ballgame that involves a whole set of human variables that are completely outside the understanding, much less control, of uh, the kind of centralized effort that, uh, that the government can, can marshal uh, to, to take on these tasks. And I, th I think that, and it's in terms of climate, it's absolutely a transformative economic uh, goal that, that these catastrophists have announced because they really, they wanna change our entire way of living. The energy is so central to our economy and our way of living. If they want to totally change our source of energy, they really want to change our whole society. Um, and the, the, the human, economic, sociological variables in that problem are totally different than the kinds of variables that come into a problem which is just purely physical or technical. And just as one one final closing thought on that, as I indicated before, it's 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 a bad it's such a thing. I mean, if you somehow needed to do it, it would be such a loss. It'd be such a, a, a such a challenge. If if your goal was if the goal was okay, let's we need to somehow transition off fossil fuels. The government needs to get involved to do it with as little loss as possible. And as I mentioned, that would require just this incredible openness to economic liberation, technological liberation, nuclear power, everything on the table, because you'd actually be looking for okay, what is the next most efficient solution? Let's say. The fossil fuel economy is is the most efficient that we know of. Just saying, stipulating that, leaving aside irrational regulation of nuclear today. What's sort of what's the second best? But they're not saying that at all. They're saying let's make the worst thing the foundation. Come, hey innovators, come up with a way to find the worst modern ideas about creating energy, the least efficient. Make those inefficient. So let's let's take the most unreliable, the most diluted and make those inefficient, that's that's your problem. And you could just keep, why not just say, let's get all our energy from hurricanes? Why not get it all somehow from, uh, you know, the mass energy of the water and the, I mean, you can, if you just keep doing the regress, it becomes clear that this is not the right way. This is exactly the opposite of how innovation works. Innovation works by thinking of what's a good idea for solving a problem. This is This is saying, What's a bad idea, and then somehow make it good. So it's it's worse than I mean it's it's worse than I thought. That's why I'm getting so emphatic about it because it has this religious dictate to it, which is is embracing the wor the least efficient things, and then saying innovation means taking deliberately choosing the least efficient goal, and then demanding that smart people make it work. I'll take that as as agreed silence. Yeah, I, there's no question that there's a very religious element in this, and you can see it in the kind of rituals, not only the, the grand kind of cosmic, almost metaphysical statements that they make, uh, you know, pertaining to the earth and our relationship to the earth, but also the kind of rituals that they endorse, the irrelevant, pointless rituals, like the rituals of recycling, that have no economic utility whatsoever in almost all cases. Um, the, the, the ritualization 
of being green, of being an environmentalist, is just a complementary indication that there's something uh, powerfully ideological and religious about the movement that can't be explained um, by some kind of scientific view that they have. Awesome. Well, that was uh, one of my favorite power hours, or more accurately, favorite power hour and a half pluses. Uh, so, Eric, thanks for, for staying on that long. It'll, you know, we'll give you a big thank you note in the book, and I think the audience will really like uh, this episode. And uh, any any final words before we sign off? Uh, that's all for me, Alex. All right. Thanks for coming. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.